I'll read you the one I like the best. Such good I wish you. Yea, and heartily I'm fired with hope of true love's meed to get. Knowing love writes it in his book. For why, this is the end for which we twain are met. Go on, Gabrielle. Seeing reason wills not that I cast love by, nor here with reason shall I chide and fret, nor cease to serve, but serve more constantly. This is the end for which we twain are met. What are you looking for? I don't know. I suppose I was looking for something to believe in worth living for and dying for. What have you found? Nothing half so interesting as an old man who was missed by Billy the Kid and a fair young lady who reads Villon. Hello, folks. I am coming to you, and that's a singular. I am coming to you today, Wacky Poem Life, and I hope you're not going to be Horribly disappointed, but I am flying solo today. Bill is on the road to visit family. And so I'm going to go ahead and do our episode 54. And I'll just have to make do because I won't have my wonderful co-host, Bill, here with me. And because I'm, uh, I'm flying solo, I am just going to go ahead and do something very different for this episode of Wacky Poem Life. Now, normally on our show, if for some bizarre reason, this is the first time you're listening, this is not what our show is like. <laughs> uh, normally, we take a poem from uh, that has been written and left here inside the Rural Oklahoma Museum of Poetry, and we talk about it, and we crack jokes and uh, beat each other up with our words and do a little poetry court segment. And today, though, since I'm flying solo, I just kind of was thinking, dug around in my head, lay in bed last night, wondering what I might want to do today. And then I just came up with this idea from the past. It was uh, many years ago I started writing this book, and it, it didn't really go anywhere, but I was really excited at first about it. Because it was a, a book where I was going to write about movies, and particularly movies that in some way had a poem or poetry in them. Now, they weren't movies about poetry, and they weren't movies about poets, and, and I'm not talking about movies that are literary in any way, but just ordinary, regular old movie, and for some reason a poem comes in, or just lines from a poem, and uh, they all it always makes me wonder when I'm just watching a regular movie and something like that happens. So I thought, what is the poem providing to the movie? And so I, get, I started keeping a journal. And um, one of the first movies that I that I kept the uh, in the journal was a 1989 movie. It's it's no great piece of art, <laughs> but I really like it. And used to back before, uh, you know, we have all the the fancy Netflixes and and things and streaming and all that we have 
nowadays, back when you just had to take your chances, what you could find on TV, anytime the movie came up, I would just watch it. And it's um, called Sea of Love. And there's a, a character actor in it who's he's been dead for a while now, but his name was William Hickey. And he kind of looks like a twig man to me. And he has this sort of nightmare, crackly voice. And in one scene of the movie, he's he's sitting in the corner and he's listening to his son, who is Al Pacino. He's the cop in uh, the story. It's a cop police movie, basically. And um, he's listening to his son and some of uh, Pacino's buddy cops talking about a case. And... Uh, it also has Ellen Barkin. I don't know if you all remember her, but she was really hot back in the day. She's in this red leather jacket, and she's got her red lipstick scowl going on. And um, anyway, William Hickey with his distinctive, shaky, I am almost dead pitch to his voice. He started talking about his wife, about how she had written him a poem once. And the poem went like this. I live alone within myself, like a hut within the woods. I keep my heart high upon the shelf, barren of any goods. I need another's arms to reach for it and place it where it belongs. I need another's touch and smile to fill my hut with songs. Okay, so this movie is not about poetry. It's about a serial killer the cliched, earnest, and overworked, half-alcoholic cop, Pacino. Uh, he always played that so well. The beautiful, mysterious girl who may be deadly. That's the Ellen Barkin character. Yet, poetry is in the skeleton of this film, and it's surrounded by the flesh and the fat of a predictable police thriller. So what purpose is the poetry serving in this movie? And even more, what purpose does it serve in human life? Well, I can, I can get that deep, but I'm not going to right away. So anyway, the bad girl, the mystery girl, the femme fatale, hothead, sexy siren, Ellen Barkin doesn't know she is living her life like a poem, and still she is. She tells Pacino right after meeting him, quote, I don't believe in wasting time on this kind of stuff. You know what you know, and you go with it. You're just not my type. I believe in animal attraction. I believe in love at first sight. I believe in this. That was a snap. I tried to snap my fingers. And I don't feel it with you. End quote. Now, that's the philosophy of poetry, actually, what she just said. Efficiency. Words used like a, uh, used like a machine works. Poetry is not necessarily romantic. It's you utilitarian. Let's get right to it, poetry says. It's the reason writers change their tone of voice when they begin reading their poetry aloud. It's the reason a reader adjusts the receiver in their brain when they hear poetry. Poetry is snapping fingers. But there's even more poetry in this movie that's not about poetry. The serial killer finds his victims through these little poetic ditties he publishes in the newspaper. The personal ads, you know, back when people had personal ads in the newspaper. And the reason the William Dickey character tells his son and the other cops about this hut poem is because they're trying to come up with the poem to put in the paper to catch the killer. Now, failing at being poetic, the cops go silent 
and that's when Hickey recites the poem, and then tells him his wife, quote, wrote that when she was in high school. It was 1934. She was a goddamn beautiful person. Go ahead. Use it. She'll like that, end quote. I would not even attempt to do his little crackly voice. You'll just have to make do with that. Anyway, later Pacino tells Barkin that his mother wrote the poem, but he had earlier implied he had, and that's when Barkin goes all in. He tells her, you know, my definition of poetry, precision in life, knowing when and how to make your move, say your piece, like you the other night with me. Ah, that was poetry in motion. Beautiful, beautiful. So this also gets to the heart of what poetry is. She snapped her fingers. He called it precision. They're both sharp, on the edge, no blurred lines, no equivocation, wishy-washy, sentimental yearning, pontificating, tears falling like rain for lost love, no love, bad love, good love, 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 love. A person is a hut in the woods that needs to be filled with songs. A goddamn beautiful person feels like a hut in the woods that needs to be filled with songs. Of course, all poetry is about love in some way. It can't be separated from it. When poems appear in mainstream films, are almost always used in reference to love. What is unique about Sea of Love, a fairly unremarkable movie, is that poetry is not only tied to the love plot, but also to life and death. Barkin's poetic philosophy of attraction is the way she lived her life. The serial killer uses poetry to lure people to their death. Well, the last love of my life had never written a poem, and after we began dating, he emailed me this one. Going to town, a girl rides her bike, pedaling, pedaling, reaching, unsure, determined to arrive, distractions abound. Town ahead, machine in the distant sounds, a howl in the wind, pedaling, pedaling, seemingly near, reality fades, wheels whisper in the wind, Town appears, going there. Even someone who's never written a poem knows the snap finger value of repetition, of alliteration, of a concentration on the sensory world, which is, after all, the only way we can know we are alive and breathing in the present. That's precise writing. No words wasted. At the time, the this guy, he barely knew me, and... He summed up my life. I've been writing poetry since I can remember. And my poem to him, which prompted his own, was pretty weak in comparison. This was it. Seasoning. In the time of the reddening leaf, the dot matrix dance of the grackle, sun fade and found hours, we met. And something without words warmed us like autumn inside our skin, the best season, the time to fall. Okay, I like the dot matrix image and the pun on time to fall, but really the poem is a bit precious in the way that his isn't at all. It is pretty obvious that poetry occurs in places where we want to express something we don't feel we can with plain conversation. We use it so we don't get all mucky with one another. In some ways, it's both an attracting and a distancing mechanism 
We write poems or allude to them, or we buy bad ones on supermarket cards to attract someone. Yet the same act creates a distance. A distance. It puts a poem between you and me. Now, notwithstanding Elizabeth Barrett Browning, few poets actually do declare I love you or thee in their work. I wonder if they, if they did in their lives. Does a poet use that phrase in daily life? How does a goddamn beautiful person live in snapping fingers awareness of life and avoid cliché and the ritual language of relationship? Is this what people are doing when they drag a poem into their lives? Admitting that dialogue on the topic is futile or that the subject is too close or real for traditional conversation? Does this honor the poem or mock it? Honor the person or mock him or her? I use the word drag because the poem doesn't want to be used. Poem often wants to be hidden or only shared with one or two people. The poem is not a lonely person who feels like a hut in the woods with no music in it. The poem wants solitude. Hickey's wife in that movie, she wrote the poem and only shared it with him. I wrote hundreds of poems before I showed a single one to anyone, and that was in college. I had a heavy cardboard box made for record albums I bought at Fleming Drug, downtown Locust Grove, Oklahoma, that I kept the poems in. The box was decorated with pink and blue flowers, and I never used it for albums because I didn't have very many albums, and they stayed in constant repetition on my record player. So eventually I came into a possession of a metal file box of the same dimensions as the record box. The file box had a veneer that made it look like wood. It smelled of rust and scrap paper. It had a key. That was the main thing. I transferred the poems that I had written into it and kept them locked. With the, the key was hidden on a string that hung in the back of my closet. When I was an adult many years into my adulthood, actually, my mom admitted to picking the lock and reading them when my aunt came over. So we drag poems into our lives to pick the lock on someone else and get inside, like the poem the wife wrote to William Hickey. My mom and aunt picked the lock to my poems to get inside my life. The serial killer in Sea of Love used poems in the personal ads to get his victims. The cops used poems to catch the killer. And some say poetry is dead. If that were really true, we wouldn't be using it in our movies and our personal lives to satisfy the criminal impulses, the deceptions we fear and embrace. Now, all the stuff about poetry and movies, it, it is really something I've thought about for a long time. I actually started um, really, really working on that book again about a year after I had started it because I had a tendency to see poetry everywhere in tree shapes along the road, in the Bible pages someone left strewn around the Little Rock Cemetery, carefully placed stones holding each one down, and the malapropisms occurring in student essays. I had a composition student who used to write essays that sounded like E.E. E. Cummings poems. They were awesome. Well, not as essays, though. And I started this museum, the Rural Oklahoma Museum of Poetry, because I think the world would be a better place if we all saw poetry in more places. I started uh, with that journal of, of movies when poetry is mentioned or recited or addressed in some way because it just made me wonder about the status of poetry in popular culture and in our everyday lives. It made me wonder even why I started writing poetry. 
it also made me wonder why more people don't. Okay, here's another movie. In the 1976, a really strange horror flick, The Little Girl Who Lives Down the Lane, a 13-year-old Jodie Foster reads a book of Emily Dickinson poems on the bus. Now, her character's dad was also a poet, a man who died and has been kept hidden in the basement so Foster can continue to live in the house with outside, with, without you know having to go to an orphanage or go live somewhere else. And Foster tells her soon-to-be boyfriend, quote, Emily Dickinson is my favorite poet, not my dad, end quote. Emily was not my favorite poet, however. One of my earliest poem memories was of her poem, Begins, I'm Nobody, Who Are You? I was probably in seventh grade because I was spending the night at my cousin's house, and we'd locked ourselves, we'd locked ourselves in the bathroom, and uh, she was attempting to change an F on her report card into a B, and she did a pretty good job of it. It was they were easy to, to do that back in the day. Um, and then we slipped right out of the bathroom into the bedroom she shared with her stepsister and slammed the door. And I pulled out this poem from one of my spiral notebooks. It was typed, which I must have done at home. I don't remember it. I don't recall what we said about it either, only she took it and scotch-taped it to her bedroom wall. And there wasn't anything else on that wall. And there were twin beds and mattresses on the floor. She used to write me 10 to 15-page notes, and one of them she had a fight with her stepsister, and she pulled out some of her hair, and she taped a few strands of it to the note. I still have that note, and I still have that hair. Now, she had uh, two brothers, two stepsisters, and when she was in her 20s, she went to the county courthouse, and she filed papers accusing her father of sexually abusing her. She was desperate for my attention when we were in junior high, and I'm not really sure why. In her 30s, she died in a car accident in Oklahoma City. She had three kids by three different men at that time. That nobody poem, Emily's poem, spoke to her. She was as isolated as Jodie Foster in that odd little movie. Are you nobody, too? I never felt like a nobody, though I've always liked that poem, and I cannot read it without thinking of my cousin and that poem hanging by a piece of tape on her bare bedroom wall. In the little girl movie, Jody tells her boyfriend that her father poet said once, quote, most people who say they like poetry only pretend to, end quote. It might be difficult for many people to understand the isolation a poet feels or puts herself into. The place of isolation brings terror and creativity. Lives are destroyed and art is created. My cousin didn't have a mother close by to protect her. She called me on the phone a lot. I never wanted to talk to her. She didn't write poetry, but she wrote me that 15-page note, and it was full of it, and I thought I was a poet, and I thought I knew poetry. And uh, I brought out this poem that she taped to her wall, one of the very few times I spent the night there, I mean, even though she asked me to every week. In Alicia Ostriker's book, Stealing the Language, The Emergence of Women's Poetry in America, Ostriker says that when women define female identity, they tend to start with their own bodies because, quote, the body can't lie. I do wonder if this is why my cousin embroidered the names of friends and people she wanted as friends on her jeans, just all up and down her jeans all different colors, embroidery thread. 
Were these people she wanted as protectors? Did she hope we would see the truth of her life? I wonder how much she wanted me to be a protector. And I don't have to wonder at how I failed her. I failed her miserably. Unless we actively seek it out, most of us are not exposed to good poetry. And if we are, we don't associate it with something we could actually write. As children, we might hear a lot of nursery rhymes and riddles. I hope you do. And poetry like Shel Silverstein's and Edward Lear's. But we don't associate those with the poetry that might be stirring inside us, as teenagers especially. We are usually made to analyze poetry we view as word puzzles or tricks that we can't quite figure out. The actual poetry might be inside of us, and that doesn't have a parallel visibility in English textbooks, which is where most people are exposed to poetry. Today, of course, people have a lot more access to good poetry because of the Internet. When I was in school in the 60s and 70s, I don't remember ever looking at a book of poetry. If the library had any, they would have been old, dusty copies of Wordsworth or Longfellow or other poets who were also the same ones that were in our textbooks. I wonder what my early poetry would have been like if I had actually read Adrian Rich or Anne Sexton or Sylvia Plath when I was in junior high or high school. The only poetry books I remember having around the house were ones by Rod McEwen, and uh, yes, my early poetry reads a lot like his, unfortunately. My first poetry mentor, uh, a wonderful poet named Terry Hummer at Oklahoma State University in the early 80s, he was very nice when I said that most of the poetry I had read up to that time was by McEwen. And his response, I still remember, was, well, that is a fine starting place. Uh, surely his inner poet died a little when he said that. <laughs> Another film. This is a 1936 film, The Petrified Forest. And it was co-written by Algonquin club member Robert Sherwood. And the poetry of Francois Villon figures quite handily in the plot, although the film is definitely not about poetry. It is, however, a love story masquerading as a gangster flick with a little bit of fatalism and comedy thrown in for good measure. It's one of those movies I have to watch anytime it comes on, although it does not necessarily have a glowing reputation. It's a 7.6 rating on IMDb. Um, if that's, that's a crime. It should be at least in the nines. Anyway, Betty Davis, this is one of her early films. She is lovely in this, fragile and yearning. In a way, she rarely was in film. Makes me think of Katherine Hepburn when she's talking about her movie Summertime, which she really disliked because it showed her fragile and yearning. Leslie Howard's in this, and he's being Leslie Howard. Humphrey Bogart is doing his John Dillinger routine. The setting's a little roadside stop in the Arizona desert where Davis reads a book of Francois Villon's poetry. I'm probably saying his last name wrong, too. I'm sorry. I meant to look it up, and I forgot. So this book of poetry that Betty Davis, her mother, uh, gave her, and the mother is in France, and uh, Davis's character is wondering if she should be gone from this desolate place, too. Now, back in Sea of Love, poetry was used to explain a way of being, of living life in the moment, being able to describe those moments in ways that attract others. In this movie, poetry is symbolic of escape. Davis yearns to escape the backwoods existence that Leslie Howard seems to find so charming. At the same time, he also encourages her to follow her own gypsy path. Howard's suicidal, brooding character, who still manages to be witty, 
is such a roamer of the world, a man without a home or even a country, much like the poet Villon himself. Uh, Villon, it was, he, he was accused of murder when he was 26, and he went on the run, and he spent most of his life in trouble uh, singing for a living and writing poetry. True outlaw. Leslie Howard recognizes the outlaw in the Humphrey Bogart character, who is a real outlaw, a thief and a murderer, and he's not afraid of him. The film asks two questions. How does one escape, and how do you live if you do? All three main characters are answers to those questions. Uh, there's parts where Davis is reading some stanzas from one of Villon's poems called Ballad Written for a Bridegroom. And um, here's a little bit of that poem. Mine own heart's lady with no gainsayings, you shall be always holy till I die. And in my right against all bitter things, sweet laurel with fresh rose its force shall dry. Seeing reason wills not that I cast love by, nor here with reason shall I chide or fret, nor cease to serve, but serve more constantly. This is the end for which we twain are met. Now that last line is a refrain that goes through the whole poem. It's kind of mournful. It sounds almost tragic, but it, it's also suitably hopeful. And it, it kind of mirrors Davis's hopeful feelings whenever Leslie Howard arrives in this little restaurant that she's working at in the desert. She's been yearning for an escape, and here's this man who has escaped, and perhaps the two of them could make an escape together. Now, spoiler alert, after he dies, <laughs> the poem serves to establish that Davis's chance of escape uh, can still happen. He, he was a catalyst in her life, just as the poems are. But the poems were not enough to motivate her to leave. When she recites the ending of the poem, she realizes that his appearance was the sign she had been looking for. Here's another stanza from the poem that she recites. Princess, give ear to this my summary. The heart of mine, your love, heart's love should forget, shall never be. Like trust in you, but I, this is the end for which we twain are met. So why does the writer Sherwood, the writer of this uh, screenplay script, turn to poetry to explain Davis's dilemma in the film? What does it contribute to the plot and the theme? It's a compelling device to continually connect Davis to her mother, a French woman who cannot stand the desert, <laughs> and return to her home on her own. But as a connection to her mother, it's sadly impersonal. So what does all this add up to? I'm not sure I really know. Um, leave me your thoughts. Maybe I'll return with more movies with poems in them and more musings. There's a... a, there's a, a Cool little movie, again, has absolutely nothing to do about poetry, but there's a scene in it where uh, Christopher Plummer's character recites a Yeats poem, and the movie is something about cats and dogs. I just lost the, I just lost the title, it has Diane Lane in it, something about cats and dogs. The truth about cats and dogs. Anyway, there's, there's a scene in there where Christopher Plummer recites a wonderful little poem. I want to want to talk about that maybe sometime. I just remembered it a while ago while, while I was talking. So uh, I, I'm sure you all are hoping for Bill to, to, to be back, and he will be back for our next episode. And thank you for bearing, bearing with me on this one. 
And if you have any thoughts about it or if you've got any any movies with, with poems in it that you know about, send me a line. And I appreciate you. And we'll get back to our regularly skilled, scheduled wacky next week. Bye-bye. Thank <laughs> you.